This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey everybody, this is Lane with the Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Please leave a return on iTunes. Uh, it really helps the show get bit bigger and better guests like Pat here. And also go to the network tab on simplepassivecashflow.com and sign up for the investor database that we're calling the Hui Deal Pipeline Club. Or shoot me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow. Today we got Pat Hyben. He is the podcast host for Real Estate Rockstars. How are you doing, Pat? Good. Thanks for having me, Lane. So, Pat, how much simple passive cash flow are you making today and how are you doing it? You know, last year I made... Four hundred eighty thousand um, dollars uh, horizontally in, in in passive income, no no vertical income. Like, like I don't trade time for money, um, or I do. I, I, you know, the podcast is trading time for money. That's not simple passive cash flow. But uh, but I didn't make any money on the podcast. Really, made a couple of dollars. Um, so majority of my income today comes from horizontal lines or passive income line. Yeah, and it's important to point that the the vertical stuff supports the horizontal in such a way. Well, it allows you to buy. In the beginning, it allows you to buy stuff. Like the way I I bought all my investments was I sold real estate. So I made commissions. Then I took the commissions that I made, invested them, and then that created um, a financially free lifestyle. So now I just do whatever I want to do, you know, rather than – uh, do whatever makes me the most money. All right. So you didn't always have that mindset. What is your Han Solo moment? And describe <laughs> a time in your life where you made this pivot. And what was the resistance that was the catalyst for the change? A couple of things. But first of all, when I grew up, I, just like every other kid, uh, thought that the best way to make money is to trade it for time. And uh, so I got jobs dishwashing and, and busboying at restaurants and things. And, and when I was 20, I lived down at the beach and I got a job as a, a working in a deli slicing meats. I was making like $4 an hour or something. And <clears throat> I worked 40 hours a week and my check was like 160 bucks. And then I, I would get taxes taken out. So let's just say it was 100 bucks was left over. So I was like, OK, cool. You know, I got 100 bucks, 105 bucks every week. And um, uh, another buddy of mine said, hey, I got this gig walking up and down the boardwalk where you have to hand out these little little free coupons and try to get people to tour these timeshares uh, that, that are being built. And if you get someone to go to one of these timeshares, you get 50 bucks. And he said, it's kind of hard, but if you get, you know, if you get one person a day, you made 50 bucks. So. I said, okay, let me give it a shot. So I went uh, out on the boardwalk that day and basically got sunburned and just worked for six, seven hours, just handing out these things, talking to people, saying, hey, you ought to go over here. You know, you'll get a free dinner if you take this tour. You get a free dinner if you take this tour. And uh, it basically was a gift certificate to a local steakhouse for $50 if they went and took the tour. So long story short, the next day I go in to the sales conference that they're having at this company and they listed all of the salespeople's names no their numbers up on a board 
and the amount of uh, sales that they got. And I'll never forget, I was number 101. And so the guy that used, was like the best salesperson at the company was this kid named Danny. They used to call him the boy next door. And he would average like three or four a day, um, which back, you know, was ton was a ton of money. It was like 200 bucks. And, uh, you know, if you did four and, um, and this was, you know, 30 years ago. So, um, so what happened was I go in there and my number's 101 and, and there's a big crowd of kids and they're all looking to see the score to see who got the best and how many they got. And all of a sudden this kid, Danny turns to his buddy and he goes, who the hell is 101? <laughs> because I like blew him out of the water. And, and the, the, the thing was you got, you got a $50 bonus if you got the most that day. So I had gotten five that day. So I'd gotten $250 plus a $50 bonus. So I'd made 300 bucks in a day. Right. And here I'm making like 150, 160 working slicing meats. And I'm like, damn, I made twice as much in a day as a salesperson, right. Working entrepreneurial, uh, as, as opposed to getting paid, you know, hourly. And so I literally, I didn't even go back to the deli. I did. I didn't even, um, give my two weeks, nothing, right. I was 20 years old. I went right back to this job. And I remember at the end of the summer, I went back to the deli and the guy was like, I was wondering if you're ever going to come pick up this check. And, um, I was like, well, you know, sorry, but I got a better job. He's like, what's wrong with you kids these days? Da, da, da. You give me that crap. But um, to make, but the, the moral of the story is that was my Han Solo moment, right? I was like, you know, there's no way, there's no way I'm I'm getting an hourly wage ever again. And then and then I went on to graduate college, and right out of college, I got into real estate sales, right? I didn't I didn't even go for a salary job, right? I was like, you know, that that that's for the birds, you know, I. I I, I need to be in some sort of sales where I'm making commissions, um, not money. And then from there, I uh, met a buddy of mine. Uh, it's another Han Solo moment, David Osborne. And <clears throat> I was sitting with him and he was sitting staring at this chart um, of some real estate offices that he owned. And we were actually at a seminar in the front row. And I'm like, dude, we're at a seminar in the front row. You should pay attention. He's nah, nah, nah. I'm just going to look over my numbers. And he's going over his numbers back and forth. I'm like, what are all these things? He goes, these are all my horizontal lines. I'm like, what do you mean horizontal lines? He's like, well, these are houses that I own. These are um, uh, real estate offices that I opened and what they paid me last month. And it was like $100 from this one, $50 from this one, $300 from this one. I was like, holy dirt. And it's got is not doing anything to to you know earn these horizontal lines. So at that point, that was my second Han Solo moment. I just started building horizontal lines, and I did the old monopoly strategy because you know Rich Dad Poor Dad wasn't even published yet. None of that stuff was published. So I, I basically learned from Monopoly where you buy little green houses, then you trade them in for big red hotels. So I bought a whole bunch of little. Uh, greenhouses. And then uh, I sold a bunch and I bought a shopping center and I bought, you know, a couple of apartment buildings and, and, uh, you know, started investing in companies. Now I have 57 lines of horizontal income. Now only 42 of those pay me money, paid me money in 2016. Let's say, uh, you know, only 42 paid me money in 2016. Other 15, they're still alive, 
they might be dying or they might be dormant or whatever, but they just don't pay, you know, dividends. They don't just give me cash sideways. And what's your worst life or business moment and what did you do after? Dude, it's, a, it's like everyday occurrence, you know? I mean, I, um, I've learned a lot, you know, I've lost, I, I did an apartment deal last year, I lost $320,000 cash on, you know, I gave, I put in 430 and two years later, um, I got back a check for 113. So that was pretty bad. That was my most recent one. That was 2016. What was the issue that went wrong there? How could you have prevented it? Well, we didn't know kind of, we we got into, it was a get, it was a property in the ghetto and we had a murder and then we had like a massive fight broke out, um, you know, a little while later and seven people got stabbed and then we got put on notice. And then after we got put on notice, we had a second murder and the cops came to us and were like, you need to either, you know, spend a million dollars fixing this apartment building up or you need to get it sold because we're going to take away your rental license if you don't, um, if you have a third murder and, and you don't get it together here. And we didn't have the money. We didn't, you know, we had like $3 million into it already. We And we didn't want to put another million in it. Um, and one of the guys that who sponsored the loan, the, you know, any, any syndication deal or any deal with multiple partners, you have to have one sponsor. So the sponsor started freaking out. Um, that we're going to lose everything. So we ended up putting on auction.com and we sold it on auction.com. But, you know, we took a bath on it. I don't know what he'd be able to sell it today for. This was last year, um, if he'd be able to sell for more or less. But anyways, you know, the lesson learned, we, we, we didn't go there at night. We didn't ask enough people for advice. You know, what do you think of this neighborhood? Is this really what we think we're getting into? We had done the same thing three times before in – a more rural area of Georgia, same level of rents and uh, number of Section 8s and things like that. But the the crime wasn't anywhere near as bad. And this was just a very hardened, rough area of Texas, you know, near it was in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, it was just a really crappy uh, ghetto. And um we just had no clue that uh, we were getting into this. We thought it was similar to what the three we bought first in Macon, Georgia, because the, they were all kind of lower income too. And we're like, oh yeah, it's no big deal, you know. But this was another story, and we got our ass kicked. What was the the occupancy when you bought it initially? Because I see a lot of these properties in like Memphis just always comes up where it's like thirty percent occupied, and then the broker puts these these projections of filling it up to ninety percent, and you're like. Dude, that's not going to happen. Well, you can. I mean, we did make that happen in Macon. You know, we we bought one for thir- that was thirty five percent occupied in Macon and brought it to a hundred percent. But uh, it was smaller. It was in our control, and we didn't have this outside force of crime, right? We didn't have any crime. I mean, you might have like one or two tenants addicted to oxycotton or some shit like that, but you didn't have, you know, people killing each other. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know, it was just a total different uh, story. And and so we struggled doing it. So, I, I, you know, you can do that, but um, we didn't have the where, you know, if we had bigger pockets and, uh, you know, had a couple million dollars and we hadn't signed for the loan personally and 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 we we were willing to wait 10 years and put more put a couple million more into it and wait 
um, and and maybe get some experts that that know what they're doing in in bad neighborhoods with apartment buildings, um, or get a contract with the with Section Eight, uh, you know, that filled the whole thing or something like that. We might have been able to withstand it or not. We didn't know, so we decided to get out quickly. We thought we would get half of our equity back. We ended up getting 30% of our equity back. So, you know, we, we lost 70% of the equity. I put in 430,000. Um, I lost 310. I think the important takeaway for the passive investors listening out there is that you got to understand what kind of business plan this is. I mean, I go after 70, 80% plus occupied buildings that are, you know, right on the fringe of being pretty stabilized. Um, granted, the returns aren't as high as you go into some of these other projects. I mean, you're going after home runs and you can get huge returns in just a matter of a couple of years as opposed to it taking five, seven, eight years. So it's all a matter of understanding what the business plan and what the syndicator is trying to do here. Yeah, I have some friends that syndicate, um, you know, 10 a year or so in Georgia and, and their whole strategy is buy and, buy and hold. You know, they don't ever plan on, you know, selling. So you know, it just depends what your strategy is too. So Pat, what's your simple passive cash flow number that you're trying to get to describe an ideal day, detailed routine and what projects you'd be working on? Perhaps you're already there. My passive income now is kind of like a room with a, a, a bunch of furniture in it. And I just move the, the furniture around. I don't, my income pays. I, I have something that I talk about on my podcast, which is called LTI, which is left to invest, which means after you you pay your family bills and you pay your taxes what is left to invest so my left to invest now is about 200 grand a year so i'm not like adding massive amounts to my um uh, horizontal lines uh, just because i don't have the vertical income to have a huge lti but but um the furniture in the room i just move around so um like last year, we sold a couple of – I think we sold two apartment buildings. I got some profit checks from that. Um, we also sold an office building, got a profit check from that. I um, I, um, I don't, I'm not afraid to sell stuff. I'm not afraid to pay capital gains tax. I, I sell it, and then I'll invest. I'm investing in all kinds of random stuff. I just invested 50000 in a fund that basically loans lawyers uh, money so they can run – ads for vaginal mesh so you know these 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 ads that you see on tv mesothelioma vaginal mess uh, asbestos stuff like that and they're making a lot of money uh, doing these class action lawsuits but they just need to fund the tv ads so it was an 18 percent loan so i gave them a chunk of cash figure i get 18 percent on that um i've got a couple other um private equity uh notes that I'm involved in. And I did one syndication last year of a, um, apartment building in, uh, Florida. So you're someone who's probably gotten past that crossover point where you have enough passive income that you've created your ideal lifestyle. Was it always like that? Or were you at some point you crossed over to where you are now? Yeah, I'm 50, I'm 51. And, um, so I, um, crossed over at 40, 46, I, you know, I was a real estate agent, had a real estate team. I sold my team, uh, in 2010, uh, I wrote, I released my book, six steps to seven figures and kind of went on book tour, which was a lot of hard work. 
And then, so in 2011 rolled around, I'm like, I'm done. You know, I'm just going to live off my passive. And I just, you know, just, just, I've for the past, you know, six or so years, I've been living off passive income. I, I created my podcast as a labor of love. And I have a university called Rebus University where I train other real estate agents how to make more commissions. And I started that last year, but I, I did those, I do those things just because I want to feel more productive not because I have to, you know, and I work on those things three days a week. So I have four day, every weekend's a four day weekend for me. I only work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays. And, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a vertical income source, um, of choice. It's because I like to do it. I like to talk to people in real estate. So that's what I do. And I don't feel like I'm being too lazy. And also my kids have gone to college. I've, you know, when I when I got out of the game at 46 uh, and started living off my passive income, I uh, my my daughters were in high school and I wanted to, you know, spend, you know, as much time as I could with them before they went off to college. So I, it, it was strategic in that sense. When they were zero to 10 years old, you're still trying to hustle and, and do everything. And yeah, I was a real estate agent, you know, so that's a that's a pretty consuming job. But I, but I, you know, understand workaholism. I don't. I, I wasn't I probably was for the first 10 years of, of my business but after that I, I leveraged it pretty well you know I still was involved in it but I wasn't ever you know I didn't work too much I never was a, a was a massive I don't say I never was there were there was there was a time in my 20s and 30s probably where I you know would work 12 hour 13 hour 14 hour days if I needed to but um but that stopped probably 15 years ago. Is that because your kids were a certain age or was it because you saw the, you know, you're projecting where you were going to be in terms of passive cash flow? Um, it was more of a conscious thing. I just didn't want to, you know what I mean? It was a choice. I wanted to be with my family. So I stopped, you know, I stopped working. I'm like, I screw it. I'm not working. You know, if I lose money, it's okay. But, you know, it, it never happens like that. You always end up growing when you start adding other people, especially if the people are better than you. Not being one of the big boys in investing quite yet, a.k.a. the accredited investor in the eyes of the SEC, it's tough to find good options for investing. But then I started investing in the American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP Fund, which is crowdfunding the mortgage crisis in America. The fund collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when they approached me to become an advertiser of the company. You can start investing with as little as 100 bucks. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please send me an email to lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. Yeah, what's your current two-week experiment? I'm building a kind of like an underground um, forum for real estate agents. A lot of people um, ask me to coach them, and I can't – I don't want to trade time for money, right? I mean that goes against uh, everything I just said in this podcast. And charging people, you know, X an hour to coach them would be going against that. So I just don't want to do it. I get asked all the time. So um, what I did is uh, what I'm doing is I, you know, I have all these Facebook pages and stuff. And I hired a, a virtual assistant just to pretend she's me and just go on there and be me 24-7. And then I'm going to create this underground um, group. And 
in that group, that's going to be the only Facebook group that I actually go into. All the rest is going to be surface stuff, right? It's going to be like, you know, surface stuff that, that uh, a VA can do. So that'll be my closest form of coaching. And then I'm going to charge in, and, and the long-term vision of it is, is you know, it's going to cost 97 bucks a month to belong. And with that, you're going to get access to multiple courses and things like that. So that's my, that's the project that I'm working on right now. So one thing I'm personally working on is getting my real estate license, not just really sell houses, but the, uh, the opportunity to take extra deductions and I might sell a house here and there. What are a couple of things that, um, things I could probably take away from your course? Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, you should, if you go check out rebusuniversity.com, there's, there's a new course that we came out with called a certified outbound lead specialist, which is basically rather than paying money and getting leads thrown to you and you catch them, you actually go out and get the leads. And I think that more assertive sources, and I know that the deals are becoming harder and harder to come by now with, with this huge influx of real estate investors into the market. So I'm finding that a lot of people that are buying deals now are, are assertively finding them. You know what I mean? They're calling people. And I think that course would be one for you as a beginner as to, you know, how to assertively call out to people and how to get leads by being aggressive. Yeah, start on my apartment investing front, which is my pretty much my main thing. Uh, you know, we're starting to call property management companies to try and get leads. You know, they're usually the ones that are on the forefront of when an owner is in trouble, it's their property, it's their problem. So, and a lot of them are brokers they'd like to sell too. So just using VAs for all sorts of things, like making calls like that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you listen to my podcast to real estate rock stars, you'll, you know, Barbara Corcoran was on there last week. Um, you know, and she talked about this thing called, um, following the gay waiter and her, her words, not mine, which, which are basically the poor creative and, and basically what she does to buy real estate. And she owns like, you know, half of New York, I'm exaggerating, but she just bought a $10 million penthouse overlooking central park that is, you know, two to two top floors of this building. And, um, she, um, so she goes out to she goes out to eat, she meets a gay waiter and she asks him where he lives or she lives. And they usually live in, you know, a blighted area that is up and coming. I mean, you could, you could listen to it at real estate rock stars and, and she has some great advice for where to find deals. Robert Kiyosaki was on there and he was talking about, you know, don't go anywhere where you see cranes. Uh, if you see, you know, more than two cranes, get the hell out of the city. And he used Vancouver, um, uh, British Columbia as an example is like crane central. And it's just like massively overvalued. So, um, I think Seattle is, has like the, the country's majority of cranes, like something like, you get like sell four, everything you own four times as many cranes as New York city or something right now. Sell everything you own there. Yeah. Yeah. But what do I know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> something that you recently thought about burning your cash on for a time savings or an improvement in quality of life. You know, I like, I spend money on experiences. I just spent, um, 50,000 on a, a trip to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, with me and my family, um, I took my sister, my sister, I have an adopted sister from Taipei, Taiwan, and, um, we found her biological family 
she's 53 years old, so she hadn't seen these people in 42 years or something. We adopted her when she was 11. I flew her, myself, my kids, her kids. She has three daughters, all to Taipei for this um, incredible tear-jerking uh, reunion. It cost me about 50 grand, uh, but it was worth every penny just in the experience that everybody had and, and just the fact that her family was able to f find this long-lost child that, that, that their mother had given away in a, in a, in a split-second decision that the family regretted afterwards, uh, but it was too late because she was already in America. And, um, you know, stuff like that that you just can't put a price on. Hey, funny thing, we were talking about that Seattle, the crane thing, and nobody listens to me to stop flying in Seattle because their ego gets in the way of their bigger and better things. What's something that you've changed your mind on recently or in the past few years that has made you a lot of money and that at first you are, didn't quite come around to? Yeah, that's easy. So if you ever read the book The Alchemist, they talk about um, – the beginner's luck and basically what beginner's luck is is usually when you start something new you have a lot of success in it because because it's new and you're excited about it and you and, and and the universe is bringing luck to you and um right the guy I, the guy who goes to the gym and he benches 60 pounds and he goes to 90 pounds in two weeks right right exactly um 2008 i started investing in non-real estate assets i invested in a um a company that's a payroll company um, uh, with a friend of mine, and that's done extremely well. Uh, now it's in like, you know, um, every state in the U.S. has like 60 employees and it's cranking. Um, but then after that, I invested in 15 more companies, you know, 50 grand here, 100 grand here, helping people out, you know, starting companies, things like that. And, and about half of them have, have failed. I had two go bankrupt in the last six months. Um, you know, just, I stopped doing that to answer your question. I don't, I'm not doing any more. I, you know, someone, someone sent me the, the deal on uh, bulletproof coffee was raising money. Um, <laughs> and he sent me a thing on it uh, last week and I looked at it and I was like, you know, Nah, you know, I've had a lot of come bets already. You know, if you play craps, you know what a come bet is. You're basically betting on the next roll to win. So um, I was like, no more come bets for me. So how does somebody get in front of all that deal flow? I mean, I've got a few deals that come my way, but it's nowhere near the next level. And then other people, all they get is like the that crappy deal in, you know, Seattle. There's negative cash flow. So how do you step <laughs> up to the next level? You just got to put it out there to the universe, you know, let people know, join groups. You know, I'm in a group called GoBundance, which is a men's mastermind uh, fraternity kind of. And and basically, you know, you got to have a million dollars in net worth or um, or greater and you got to make a certain amount of money to get in. And, and we're always talking about deals. Everybody's interested in investing. And there's we have a like an insider website. We're constantly passing around deals. Um you know, and so it's the people like that. It was like one of those guys that, that gave me the bulletproof coffee deal. Even though I didn't take it, it was interesting to look at. Inside those groups, you you have that relationship where you know, like, and trust each other. Funny, I, I had that GoBundance thing on my vision board. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Do it. 
And so Tony Robbins identifies two large concepts that we're continually struggling to gain perfection at. The first is the art of fulfillment, and the second is science of achievement. What is your secret or hack to first the science of achievement? Any secret habits? I think mine, mine is, and you've probably heard this before, R&D, which is rip off and duplicate. You know, if I see something working, I'll, I'll try to, you know, duplicate it as fast as possible and just cut right through it. You know, just be like that guy that's like, okay, that's working for him. Let me just substitute my face instead of his and duplicate it, you know. So that's how I've always done it. Yeah, like right now, Facebook ads are pretty good. I'm not going to try and learn. I'm just going to pay someone to do it for me. Yeah. What is your secret hack to the art of fulfillment side? That takes more time, I think. You know, I've volunteered for a couple of really cool charities in, on a deeper level, and I'm not talking about just like serving people soup in a soup kitchen, but, you know, two two ones that I was heavily involved in and still am. Um, one is Back on My Feet, which basically we run with homeless people, essentially, you know, veterans that got addicted to heroin in Vietnam and then, you know, had screwed up lives and then have come off of heroin and now are trying to get healthy and we jog with them every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at five in the morning. I did that for about four years and I still have relationships with a lot of these guys now. After that, I did uh, a program called Children of Incarcerated Parents. And I basically took uh, two brothers whose mom was in jail, put them under my wing about five years ago. Still in like, you know, one of them was texting me this morning about he missed the bus and I got him a $6 Uber to school, you know. You know, I think that if you're going to get in with a charity, you're going to get in with um, people. You just have to go deep, right? When I was running with the with the back on my feet uh, guys, you know, I was there every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I was a regular, right? They, they saw me. I was always there. Um, and same with the with the children of incarcerated parents. Their mom uh, recently got out of jail, but you know, while she was in jail, and and I'm still in touch with them, but I'm not like like I was, but when she was in jail, I was with him every week, you know what I mean? And in the summertime, maybe even more than that, you know, I really, um, stepped up and I'm, I'm, I'm just saying that because, uh, I think if you're going to do something, do it a hundred percent, you know, do it the best that you can. Don't be shitty at, uh, anything that you commit to, or just don't commit to it. And, and, and both of those got, got me a ton of fulfillment. Anything we missed or want to leave your contact for anybody to get a hold of you, Pat? Yeah, sure. So the real estate school is rebusuniversity.com. The um, uh, the podcast is called Real Estate Rockstars, and you can get that on, um, you know, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, uh, even Google Play. So uh, we're out there. You know, we've we've had over a million and a half downloads. We have incredible guests on every week. So visit us there and uh, let us know what you think. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your time, man. We'll see you later. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.